following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day good. Phone charge to 100% good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Chinese manufacturers have invested billions of dollars in, in Eastern African countries beginning to shift footwear production toward there, which, you know, like it or not, is, is a result of chasing where you can find the lowest wages, which is just not the right approach to, to changing the industry. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, we have Patrick Woodyard. He's the co-founder and CEO of Nisolo, a not-your-everyday, mostly shoe company that has baked into its mission a commitment to sustainability and ethically made products. Patrick, um, did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Where does the name? Well. Thank you for for doing this, by the way. Absolutely. Where yeah, does, excited to be here. Where does the name Nisolo come from? Ooh, great question. Um, so Nisolo is basically a word that we made up. That's a blend of a couple Spanish words: ni meaning neither and solo meaning alone. Um, so, quick backstory on that. I'm in Peru. It's 2011, and we have about. 500 pairs of our first ever shoes made and we still don't have a name so we have no label in these shoes that need to ship to the u.s very soon and i had a spreadsheet of i don't know 50 different names we were com- contemplating but just couldn't really nail down exactly what we wanted to be you had to name your baby and so yeah exactly yeah i mean you had to name it and wasn't can't change it so there's a lot of pressure on it but there was a kind of key moment where I was riding in a colectivo, kind of public packed out transportation, burning up, moving from one side of the city to the other, and knew we had to pick a name that day. So I thought, what's at the very, very core of, of what we want to do? And of course, with that, a name came to mind that wasn't even being contemplated. And I thought, well, what we want to do is um, we want consumers to recognize that we're not alone in the world, that where our products are made and consumed matters and who, and, sorry, who makes those products matters and how they're made and how the planet is treated matters. And so that was kind of the idea was this concept of we're not alone. And then on the flip side of that, the global fashion industry today, you know, the, at the bottom of the supply chain, oftentimes no one thinks about who's making these products. And so they're kind of, Producers are on this island without any rights and without any recognition. Right. And so it's kind of the Spanish phrase was ni nosotros ni ellos están solos, or neither us nor them are alone on both ends of the supply chain. So we blended mm. ni and solo to make me solo. Is it, is it helpful to have a name where people look at the name and they're a little uncertain that they're going to mispronounce it? <laughs> yeah, we definitely run into that. We get a lot of nisolos and right. nisolos. And- There's a pause before people say the name. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think on one hand, yeah, it, at the end of the day, there's there's some negatives to that because people maybe don't give it a shot or it's harder to remember. But then there's also a few positives where people are kind of in the club when they know how to say it. I think right it's a positive, yeah. Um, t- tell me a little bit about your background. Were you a, a fashion guy, a shoe guy, a sustainable products guy? W- who were you before you had this Peruvian uh, epiphany? Yeah, so definitely was not much of a fashion guy per se and not necessarily passionate about footwear. 
Um, and definitely not the way I, I entered into me solo. So uh, I started this relatively fresh out of college. And in college, I studied global economics and business and uh, spent a lot of time working with entrepreneurs in developing countries to help scale a nonprofit working in Uganda. Spent a few summers there. Um, spent about five months in Argentina and a little bit of time in Brazil and Paraguay. And kind of throughout all that, there was some sort of tie towards working with entrepreneurs and helping them get products to international markets. And so after graduating, I kind of wanted to do something that allowed me to pursue my passion for business and using market forces um, and with kind of a social and environmental impact at the same time. And so that's kind of what eventually led me to um, northern Peru, where I took a job in microfinance and um, spent about a year helping women grow small businesses, overseeing loans, helping them um, get business up and off, off, off the ground, and really a lot of hands-on, raw experience with, with microfinance, which at the time, unfortunately, was kind of seen as somewhat of a panacea to help people grow out of poverty. So from there, my plan was you know, very firmly to go to business school, and was, I was studying for the GMAT at night in Peru and was kind of planning on you know, going to work with a bigger company that was doing great things um, from a social perspective, but, you know, more down a business track. And um, that's when kind of everything changed one day about three or four months into that process when Doris, who was one of the women in our microfinance program, um, she had a small grocery store that she ran out of her home and I was working with her and helping her balance her books and think of marketing strategies. And there's all this noise going on in the back of their household. And um, she noticed my interest and says, hey, my husband's a, a shoemaker. Do you want to meet him and see the shoes? And I'd been in this, I was in northern Peru, so Trujillo, which is a city of about a million people, the right. third largest city in Peru. And I hadn't seen any shoes being made. And so I was very interested. And so we turned the corner um, in their kind of, you know, humble home on the outskirts of the city. And I meet her husband, William, who's sitting there hand-making by himself some of the nicest-looking dress shoes I'd, I'd ever seen. And, um, you know, of course, it kind of rocked my world a little bit and saw this incredibly quality product in this environment. And I was just struck by his ambition um, and the entrepreneur that he was as well. And so kind of all of this juxtaposed with the surroundings struck a, a chord with me and a light bulb kind of went off like, I know so many people have, you know, experienced, especially traveling to the developing world, of just so much talent and potential locked up, um, but a lack of access to, to key things to really be able to grow out of poverty. And so kind of with this moment, I thought, I really want to help William and his family. You know, I went home and slept on it and thought, okay, but how could this ever scale? Um, and, and, you know, immediately started to kind of look into it a little bit more, and I found out that I was in the shoemaking capital of Peru, that Trujillo is the shoemaking right. capital of Peru, and there was this whole district of the city that I hadn't been to where everything in it had to do with shoemaking. And, then, and there were over 30,000 shoemakers in this same city, many of whom faced you know, similar challenges to William, that the local market had become completely saturated. No one knew how to get products to international markets, but the quality and the skill set that was there uh, is one of those that really exists only in a few pockets around the world. Right. So thinking about that quality you know, that's what really drove me into this was the, the opportunity from an impact perspective, but also, um, you know, the, the opportunity to start a business that 
at first glance maybe didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, but the more I dug into it and investigated the U.S. market, I knew that there was a huge opportunity in front of me. So no, definitely not. Fashion background is more opportunistic <laughs> and a passion to, to kind of create impact. Well, it's a really important moment, I think, for listeners interested in starting a business or who have a, a moment like you had with William where you see all this potential and you see what could be, you know, truly, you know, widespread demand for, for a really original and unique product. What did you do? You said market entry was difficult for for William and for local producers, what did you, what was your next step to get the business off the ground? Yeah. So I went and visited with hundreds of shoemakers ranging from a couple people in an operation like Williams to the, a couple factories with 50 plus people in them. And, uh, thought I started to learn what were the challenges? Why was there not, why was there no growth for William? What were, what were the issues that he was facing? Um, and it really came down to market more than anything else. And it didn't, it didn't, uh, it definitely supported my, my idea when I, the shoes he was making, I really liked a lot and wanted to wear. And so I knew that, you know, I looked at the U S market and thought this is a, a huge opportunity to go to a customer base that, uh, would really be excited about the quality and design of these products, but also the impact behind it. And so the first thing I did was, I created about a five or seven page exec summary of kind of the business plan. And I literally sent it to everyone I knew, professors, mentors, family members, friends, and just said, hey, I'm down in Peru. I have this idea. What do you think? And um, started to get feedback. I flew back to the States for a couple weeks, um, mid, mid th midway through that year and met with some friends of friends or family friends that were pretty high up in some major footwear businesses and went and met with them, showed them the shoes and pitched the idea. And of course their response was, uh, this isn't going to work. Um, you're never going to be able to do anything <laughs> that's going to support more than yourself. You're in this over is, your you head. know, this isn't going to make sense. It can't scale. Um, which I think is yeah important for listeners. You're going to get that feedback from some people, but I saw something different. I saw, um, I saw, I guess, two or three trends in the in the industry in the in the U.S. at the time that that really led to me pulling the trigger and and starting me solo. And so, just to kind of quickly run through those, I think the first one was just that I saw that, and not that this is that different today. We're starting to see this change, but I saw that no one really cared or talked about who made the clothes and and shoes to wear every, every day. I, I saw that you know clothes were becoming cheaper and cheaper both price and quality wise and it just didn't make sense to me and when I looked around myself as a consumer and talked to friends about challenges they they were having with finding the products they wanted I just realized you couldn't get you know quality and design that you want at an accessible price point and know that it was made in a responsible manner you were always having to sacrifice at least one of those three things even right. if you went kind of the impact route and really wanted to buy from some nonprofit, it's probably not a product that you want, or it's probably a luxury item that's way too expensive if it's made responsibly. And so that was the first thing that I saw and thought, this can be different. And the second, this was kind of late 2011. And at that time, millennial consumers especially were reacting to Tom's, Tom's shoes in a big way, right. become kind of all the buzz. And I saw that consumers were starting to recognize that they could, you know, have a sort a certain altruistic spirit in their consumption, 
and could buy products that they want and have some sort of an impact behind them. And that was kind of evidence of a, of a bigger shift that's going on. If you read kind of any consumer trend report looking years out, that millennials and even in Gen Z, even in a bigger way than millennials, um, they're starting to care more and more about the environmental and social impact um, behind their products. So I saw an opportunity to create a story that would really resonate with uh, a millennial customer base. Right. And then, and then finally, the third shift that I saw was kind of a shift towards direct to consumer. This was you know, early stages of Warby Parker. They had just launched not long before that, introducing prescription glasses at $100. The razor wars were kind of getting started, the mattress <laughs> wars. And I saw, what if we got ahead of this retail shift away from kind of the wholesale model toward online? Right. And with those three combined, just thought, you know, I'm going to start a company that can give consumers what they want at an accessible price point and in a responsible manner. Taking a quick break, we'll be right back. The Forbes Under 30 podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and it seems like a good idea to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off when you do. And you wanted people to see William, right? You wanted people to recognize the talent that they're buying and feel like there's some investment in the production. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted people because, again, at the end of the day, what drives me and my team and gets me up out of bed out of the hard, uh, on the hard days is, is thinking about the longer-term impact we're wanting to have in the fashion industry. And people need to know and see the faces uh, of the people behind the products that they're that they're consuming, and so that's why you know, Williams in, in plenty of our videos and it still plays a key role on our team is just it has to become real and tangible. Right. And it, in order for this, in order for people at the bottom of the supply chain of the fashion industry to to stop being just overlooked and and not thought about in a in a big way as a key stakeholder in the bigger equation. Patrick, you mentioned Tom's. Are there any challenges that come with having an impact model or stereotypes associated with being an impact brand? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I think that, thankfully, that's beginning to change. I think that, like I said, historically, anytime you started to talk about impact or kind of having you know, some sort of positive result of your consumption, people immediately think, okay, the product must be terrible. <laughs> right. um, this must be some trend or something like that. And like I said, Tom's kind of opened the consumer mindset to say, hey, you know, hop on this trend and you can have an impact too. I think what we wanted to do with Me Solo was a little bit different in the sense of if you see someone wearing Me Solos, they're not going to jump out at you like Tom's did. We're, we're just trying to say, hey, what if we met what consumers want you know, at the core from a stylistic perspective, focus on kind of updated classic models, but offer that product, you know, at a great quality, at a great price, right. and, and, and make sure they know it's consumed responsibly. I, I think it's important for people to have a sense uh, and have context of, of, you know, what separates Nisolo from other companies. How are leather shoes typically made, you know, and what is the demand on workers in other countries producing them? I think the way that you know, leather shoes are made is, is similar to apparel in the garment industry. I mean, most places around the world and most footwear today is, is coming from India and China and now shifting more and more towards Southeast Asia. 
and because of <laughs> a pricing war towards cheaper wages. And even in the last couple of years, Chinese manufacturers have invested billions of dollars in, in Eastern African countries beginning to shift footwear production toward there, which, you know, like it or not, is, is a result of chasing where you can find right. the lowest wages, um, which is just not the right approach to, to changing the industry. And, um, and, and so I think for Nisolo, you know, we recognize that the, the fashion industry is just, it's broken today. It's the second most polluted industry in the world. There's an incredible amount of social injustice throughout the supply chain. Wages, as I mentioned, are just unjust, period. And so Nisolo, what we want to do is we want to help create a fashion industry where success is based on more than just offering the cheapest price, as I mentioned earlier. An industry, you know, that is, it values exceptional design and the producer and the planet, not, and not just the end consumer, which is kind of what you've seen historically. To put it briefly, kind of three ways that we go about that. Um, the first is we own and operate um, our own kind of what we call our model factory for the industry or our own dream factory in Peru. And within that factory, the way that we're different is, you know, fair wages, consistent work, health care for workers and safe working conditions. <laughs> so right. can we at least start there? And the reality is that's not even happening today. For us, we're offering 30% above a fair trade standard wage in our factories, but right. we're also about going deeper. So a couple ways we do that is a focus around education. So that's skill sets, training, uh, both hard skills from a, from a manufacturing design footwear perspective, but also soft skills, professional development, teamwork, things like that. And then also we offer financial literacy training to all of our shoemakers um, and their families, savings mm -hmm. program. And what we've seen from that is the results, at least in our own factory, have been really strong. We have uh, in our factory in Peru, the average income increase for a Nisolo worker compared to where they were working before is 145%. Wow. Um, and for women is 173% right now. And, and, and so we, but again, we want to see how can this become holistic? What's the long-term result that we can create from this? What's the impact going to be on the next generation? As we've scaled, we've recognized, uh, we also wanted to give a major thumbs up to the concept of championing other already scaled ethical factories. And right. so we searched all over um, Mexico. In our case, we kind of wanted to stay in Latin America because that's what we know the best, we're most familiar with, and you know, basically have found three factories there that uphold definitely that ethical standard, but also go deeper than that on, on, on a few different levels and that you know, we're excited about and have begun to adapt even some of the things they're doing as well. It's true in, in reading about you and watching some of the things you've said in, in preparation for this interview, it made me consider how little uh, we think about or I think about the clothes that we wear and the origin of the clothes and the story of the clothes. How is the cheaper, faster, higher volume uh, credo of fashion destroying the planet, as you say, but what are things people can do? What are actionable things that people can do uh, to learn about where their clothes are from? I think that the thing that I think I respect most, when it's done, of course, in a tasteful manner, because it's easy to, to not do that as well, but I respect when consumers take a pretty aggressive approach toward asking the brands that they that are making the products they're wearing today 
you know, hey, shoot them a quick email to their customer service or, you know, comment on their social media, again, in a tasteful way. Can you tell me about where this is made? Can you send me some information? Where's the factory? What are people paid? If they're not going to answer that or not going to take the time to respond, there's probably a problem with that. And the second one, I think, is, is, is beginning to seek out brands that are, are producing ethically. You can Google search that, search ethical footwear, search ethical you know, pants or whatever it is you're looking for, and you're going to start to find uh, brands that resonate with what, you're want, with what you're wanting. As that demand is being created, the supply is, is coming along as well, and there's more of it um, that you can find. And then I think from an environmental perspective, it's also important to, 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 to buy better quality products that are going to last longer. I think right. you know, with fast fashion taking over the industry in the past 15 years of cheaper you know, products and cheaper quality as well, that's why so much are ending up in dumps around the world. Buy quality that's going to last. And, and it, it's not just from an environmental perspective, but actually in the long run, if you do the math, it's better for your wallet too to invest in a, in a product that's going to last longer. And we're taking a quick break. We'll be right back. By now, you've heard about the Equifax breach and how it may have impacted approximately 143 million people. These hackers made off with information needed to impersonate you. Names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses. This information can be used to open credit cards, loans, even apply for a mortgage in your name. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. They use proprietary technology to detect a wide range of identity threats and will alert you if your information is being used. If there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES. That's FORBES for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% right now. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Outside of shoes, is there any other uh, complement clothing that Nisolo is looking to get into? Will you pair it with ties or suits or anything in that, in that area? I definitely think that there's you know, opportunity down the road for us to expand categories in a big way. We've already moved uh, – relatively aggressively into large accessories in the last year and move that category from about 10% to 20% plus of our sales. So that's weekenders, messenger bags, um, all kinds of totes right. and, and things like that. That's, that's been a big expansion. 
Um, but apparel, while it's true the distribution is you know the same from our own website, that doesn't change the difficulties of the manufacturing. And so right now, you know, I would I have my team focused on footwear and accessories, knowing that sure down the road there's an opportunity, but we've just learned the hard way the importance of focus. And um, and I want to make sure that you know if we do come out with apparel, it's going to be some of the best that's out there. We're not going to rush that. You see some brands very quickly rush into other categories. We'd rather take a slower approach and um, and do it when the time's right and when the product's right. Well, Patrick, next question, um, and this is a very serious one. Uh, is the Lockwood trench boot uh, waterproof or water resistant? The, <laughs> I, know it's free, I know it's free shipping because it's over 150, but I am on uh, nisola.com. <laughs> yeah. The Lockwood trench boot is water resistant. It is not away. waterproof. Oh. That said, we do have an all-weather boot that's really? being released next month with a Vibram sole, excellent traction on the bottom, Wonderful. relatively similar profile to the Lockwood. Ooh, okay, uh, that is and is going to be your best bet for you know snowy conditions and rain nice. and things like that. Nice. Tell me a little bit about Zoe. And uh, your your co-founder, right? And and how her strengths may have complemented yours. Definitely. So I guess rewind all the way back to I sent out that exact summary, as I mentioned earlier, to everyone in my network. And, you know, started to get all this feedback and then started to get vision for the company and everything was going great. And then right. I realized... Okay, women are going to have our women customer, women's footwear is probably going to be our major category. Not only do I know very little about fashion, I also know very little about uh, footwear, much less women's, women's footwear. And, um, and so one of my requests when I emailed everyone was, hey, do you know anyone that you know, knows about the fashion industry, would get excited about what, I'm, what, what we're doing? I'm not trying to assume that, that I know enough about the fashion industry to make this thing work. And through that, uh, a good friend from college that was uh, working for Saks at the time in New York connected me with a friend of hers who happened to be Zoe, who was basically on the opposite end of the global supply chain. I'm down you know, working with these shoemakers. She's sitting in an office in New York working for a multi-billion dollar fashion right. brand, but we're looking at the industry and recognizing the same problems. She's you know, a millennial. She's excited about her work. But she also wants to know that, you know, what the brand is doing is, is being done in a, in a responsible manner that she can get excited about. And that's not necessarily the, the you know, the vibe that she was getting. Everything right. was about margin. Everything was about, um, you know, lowering cost. And, and, and there didn't seem to be much care, definitely no conversation around the environmental or social impact of, of that company. And so she was looking, you know, to find a way to merge her passion for design and fashion with, with impact as well. And so we got connected. We had a four-hour Skype conversation, her in New York while I was in Peru. I convinced her to fly down and check everything out. She met all our shoemakers. She visited some tanneries. And she flew back to, to New York, quit her job, moved back on a one-way flight with uh, you know, no salary to help me, to help me start Nisolo. And... Uh, <laughs> And I guess the rest is history. Patrick, you mentioned Leon, uh, Mexico. I'm looking at the Diego low top sneaker, which comes in beige and comes in white. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if it comes in any other color. Yeah, it comes. It, it comes in beige. It comes in a brown uh, yeah. color. I think we call it tobacco on there. It might That's just right. say brown. Tobacco. I'm not sure. 
And then um, it will be coming out in a few new colors this spring as well. I think, let me see, I'll have to check real quick. We have the mid top that also comes in black, which is very similar to the Diego, but just a little bit higher on the Mm -hmm. sides as, as kind of a traditional mid top. The Diego, yeah, it looks like the Diego only comes in brown and that uh, bone color as okay. well. Okay, and are you in a st- – like would I be able to try these on before committing? No, you wouldn't, but that's why you know we, we're going to offer free shipping on that product and – Send them right back, I guess, if, if, trust, if it's not the right trust field. The online. Can you give us a, a sense of where the business is at and are you profitable and, and how much have you grown? Can you tell us? Yeah, so we're coming up on – our sixth birthday uh, as a brand. And yeah, I mean, it's been an, an incredible journey. I think from from inception, um, each year since we started, we launched in Q4 of 2011, and each year we were able to grow by 100 to 150% in top-line revenue each year. And um, that happened kind of all the way through to 2016. And in 2016, that was kind of you know the year we started to to recognize our factory in Peru wasn't fully ready for scale like we thought, and we only had about forty percent of our inventory in healthy stock in 2016. So I apologize if you tried to buy product from Mitsola in 2016, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it caused a lot of challenges from an operational and financial perspective. But we fought through it. We got our supply chain ironed out. We overhauled our our factory in Peru and. Um, this entire year, we've, we've experienced 95% plus uh, in stock averages. So I've kind of turned that around and are back on track. We'll more than double again this year in 2017 and uh, expect comparable growth in, in the years to come. Um, you asked about profitability. Each year, we were about break-even and doubling in size. We're much more focused on growth than, than profitability, per se, um, through, those, through those early years. Last year, with the setback from a manufacturing right. perspective we took a pretty big loss but this year we'll have slight profitability um relatively small in nature bouncing back from the the loss last year and then in the next year's few years to come is when we'll, we'll really get to a place where we can start to generate our own cash and pour it back into the business well you um patrick i mean it's a great story and you sound like a really optimistic uh, entrepreneur, were there? I'm curious. Any obstacles that you felt were insurmountable over this, over the course of, of uh, Nisolo and getting it off the ground? Definitely. I think, yeah. In order to create a brand that I could guarantee, you know, manufactured in a way that we could be very proud of, not only from quality design perspective, but also you know the social and environmental uh, sustainability and impact. I knew that we would need to start our own manufacturing operation. Um, And so let me recap kind of what that meant at the time. I'm 23 years old at the time, living in Peru, have this idea for Nisolo, and decide to start not only a manufacturing operation in Peru, but also a brand that's going to target the U.S. market, a fashion brand. And we only had a $25,000 family and friends loan. (laughs) So basically, kind of with fueled by the desire to create this impact, I, uh, you know, was essentially starting two businesses at the same time and didn't fully realize that. I kind of saw them as vertically integrated, but no, they're completely different in nature. So that left plenty of room uh, for mistakes. I I didn't recognize the importance of focus um, at the time. 
and we certainly we certainly made those mistakes. I think one early mistake was starting with a small group of artisans. Um, we I really had a desire for that initial group to become you know the general managers and lead right. managers of the factory, forgetting or not fully embracing the educational background and what it would take to get there. So what we did, kind of with a passion for to 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 have a, a tremendous impact in their lives, we spent I spent and my current general manager manager spent hundreds and hundreds of hours professionally developing, trying to get certain people on our team to a point where they could be the leaders we would need them to be of a hundred plus person factory. And, um, that was a mistake. I think something that social entrepreneurs sometimes run into is you're so passionate about the impact that you're creating that sometimes, uh, you can let your emotions get the best of you. And we, we learned that mistake the hard way we made, um, you know, I think that the kind of pursuing the professional development route rather than just saying, let's get the right people in the right seats on the bus, as you know, Jim Collins always says, right. uh, it, it cost us a few years probably of growth and definitely a tremendous amount of money as well versus now we have those guys in their sweet spot. William is still in our factory and he's, you know, plays a major role in the design and development process within the factory doing what he loves to do every single day. He didn't want to spend his day in spreadsheets and, right. and managing people. It's, he's an artisan. That's what he loves through and through. And also we were so focused on the social impact that we were, that we were creating that we didn't necessarily focus as much as we should on, on making sure the business was efficient and operating right. in, at, a, at, a, at an amazing rate um, on, the, on the ground. And so we didn't have all our key indicators in our factory set up properly, and that's why – the you know the the issues we started to run into in 2016 with low inventory stock should have been sniffed out long before. But um, you know you have to as a social entrepreneur, just like from a product perspective, we weren't going to create a product that had to be sold with the story. The product had to right. be able to stand for itself. The quality, the design, the price that was key. It could, we couldn't depend on the impact to sell the product. Similarly, in the factory. We made the mistake of thinking, you know, let's focus so much on professional development and impact when the first thing you have to do is have a legitimate, you know, efficient um, factory. Are you doing any kind of traditional advertising now for New Solo? We have just started to do a little bit, little bit more traditional advertising. We rolled out paid, um, digital paid advertising in the past year or so, uh, primarily um, – just tracking you know, people coming into the funnel and tracking, you know, through cookies, which we're not annoying. If, if we're not going to follow you all over the place for six months, we're going to go away pretty quickly if you don't follow us. But we're just starting with some paid, getting excellent um, returns on our ad spend on that front. But still today, the majority of our um, of our marketing budget is spent, you know, more on things like content creation, um, kind of really building our email list, our social channels. And, uh, and taking a more grassroots uh, approach and, and knowing that our customers love the product, but when they, when they hear the full story, um, you know, they're coming first for the product, but when they understand what we're creating, they become our brand champions. And it's not just, hey, I like those shoes. Right. Oh, thanks. It's let me tell you about me solo. And that's been definitely key to, to our growth and success thus far. Well, Patrick, 
Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. After our interview, Patrick and I kept chatting, and he generously gave Forbes Under 30 listeners a 20% off discount code when you buy a pair of Nisolos from nisolo.com. How do you spell Nisolo? Good question. N-I-S-O-L-O.com. At checkout, plug in Forbes 20. That's Forbes 2-0. At checkout, the offer's good through November 15th, 2017. Thank you, Patrick. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcast1.com. Hey guys, it's Jack Vanek from The Lady Gang. And if you haven't heard of our podcast, you are missing out. And this month we are doing this series called Lady Gang Your Life, where we're having experts from every field come on and they're giving their expert opinion on everything from social media to skin to hormone health. I think you guys are going to love it. So grab a mimosa and come hang out with us every Tuesday on podcast1.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.